Now he tells me you can download sermons. I didn't know. <laughs> um, if you're surprised to see me here, I'd be dishonest if I didn't say that I am too. Um, being at this pulpit is new to me, and I know my face is new to many of you. So before I begin, let's pray together for God's grace in all of our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, I ask your presence in my heart and mind as I speak, and your presence in the hearts and minds of all those listening, so that your living word, Jesus, will be honored in this place and more deeply in each of our hearts. Amen. Last week, we finished studying together the book of Ruth, and this week, we're going to start on another short book from the Old Testament the book of the prophet Jonah. Um, Today's reading is chapter one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid his fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down to the hold of the ship and lay down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing, sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. 
When Jerry first asked me to preach this Sunday and said it would be on the first chapter of the book of Jonah, I read the scripture, and like Jonah, I wanted to run. Should I research last-minute cruise options to Tarshish for the month of July? The Bible did say that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, so I thought I'd better stop, ponder, and pray before calling a travel agent. Still, I admit, I tried to find out where Tarshish was located, and discovering that it was probably on the southernmost coast of Spain, near Gibraltar, Jonah's plans began to make sense to me, and they became even more understandable when I looked up the location of Nineveh, the city that Jonah wanted so badly to avoid. That city was along the Tigris River in a war-torn town we now call Mosul in Iraq. Spain or Iraq? Kind of an easy choice. Spain was the farthest nation than of the known world and as far away from Nineveh as possible. And at the time that this book of the Bible was written, anyone would choose almost any place but Nineveh. The book of Jonah was probably written 700 to 800 years before Christ, and Nineveh was a terrible place for a Jew to be asked to go. The Assyrian nation was the Jews' number one enemy, a powerful state that used torture and terror to destroy their neighbors, actually employing some of the methods now used by modern-day ISIS. And sadly, Assyria's strength was proved to Israel later on when they were eventually conquered. Jonah's reluctance to go there made complete sense to me. And the more I read the book of Jonah, the more I could get rid of my veggie tail kind of comical cucumber Jonah and see in Jonah a person much like myself and maybe like you too. God's word to Jonah was contrary to anything that made human sense. What use was preaching God's word to people who had absolutely no interest in listening and would probably kill you in a most unpleasant way? Using his brain and his logic, Jonah knew that going to Nineveh was foolish, dangerous, and a waste of time. So he headed for the relative security of a remote city in Europe. Jonah could not believe God was serious, and yet Jesus took the book of Jonah very seriously and talked about it in Matthew 12, 39 to 41. He talked of the sign of Jonah as a sign for his work, the recognition that God is at work to save all people, even those of us who may be fleeing his salvation message and his opportunities for healing and wholeness. As members of this Zionsville community or other communities close by, many of us are blessed with options about how we spend our time and our money. And it appears that much thought goes into trying to build a completely secure environment for ourselves and our children. We work to invest wisely so that the children will always have a home in a safe neighborhood. We buy plenty of insurance in case anything unforeseen happens. We wrestle to get the best health care available. We plan for retirement, for college, house repairs, and we worry whether the government's going to be able to honor our Social Security. 
because the unknown is scary to most of us and we're very uncomfortable with vulnerability. Jerry spoke a few weeks ago about the extreme vulnerability of the people he met in Uganda. Sadly, death was a frequent occurrence for them because they did not know where their food or medical help or any of their basic needs would be met. And this kind of uncertainty is the reality for much of the world. God was saying to Jonah, make yourself vulnerable. And Jonah did not want to take that kind of risk. And we don't either. It's against everything we've strived for. We work hard for comfort and security and hope that enough of both will produce happiness or at least satisfaction. One of the great teachers in my life of living in an uncomfortable but very fruitful situation were my former in-laws who lived in Cleveland, Ohio when I first met them. My father-in-law was the night managing editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper. And every evening he rode the public transportation from East Cleveland where they lived into Center City to work on the morning newspaper and then came home again in the early morning hours. The neighborhood that they, that they lived in gradually transitioned from being a very safe place for their three boys to grow up in to becoming the home of violent gangs and fighting. My father and mother-in-law stayed in that neighborhood, stayed in the church where they eventually were the only people of their race and continued to serve the people of their neighborhood, their friends. One night, as my father-in-law was walking home from the train station, he was badly beaten, mugged, and his wallet was stolen. He walked on home, went to bed, as was their custom, and came down for brunch at the usual time. My mother-in-law first saw him then, all bruised and cut up, and cried, Russell, what on earth happened to you? His quiet response was, last night I met a desperate man. He had no anger. They stayed in that same neighborhood until he died several years later. His funeral was packed with folk of all economic and racial and social backgrounds. My in-laws stayed to be a light in a dark place in spite of their adult sons trying to convince them to move to somewhere safe. But for them, it was God's Nineveh. In April um, this year, I was fortunate enough to go on a mission trip to Egypt. It was my third trip to the Middle East, and I think it has taken me several visits to begin to understand what it means to be a Christian in one of the many countries where Christianity is not only not welcome, often not tolerated, the choice to follow Christ there is very much like Jonah's spiritual journey. While we were in Cairo, we stayed in a seminary where the students are trained to go into often very hostile territory to worship God and teach about Jesus. These students will wrestle with questions of how to help people who've had visions of Jesus, which is a frequent occurrence over there knowing that if they give them Christian literature, they may be kicked out of their families or even murdered. Some of these students will face persecution, maybe imprisonment, and their mission trips are to places like Syria and Iraq and Libya, 
places where Christians are desperate for support. In the dining room of this seminary is a sign that reads, nothing great ever comes from your comfort zones. And this has stayed in my mind ever since we returned. In small ways, we have daily choices to go outside our comfort zones and then occasionally big opportunities come along. Sometimes we choose to follow God's lead into a situation that might be difficult and other times it's just placed in our reluctant laps. Many times during the day we might have a call to help someone when we already had other plans or we find out at the last moment that someone was just taken to the hospital and needs a visit or food or grass cut or children transported. How many folk are blessed, including ours, when we put aside our own agenda? But if I'm honest, my first inclination is often to wait a little bit and hope someone else will do it. I think this is a particular challenge for people in my generation. We can think, well, we've taken our turn. Now it's the younger folks' turn. But the problem with that is that God wanted to bless Jonah and how much we miss when we choose Tarshish. My first husband worked for Eli Lilly and he was offered a job in Kobe, Japan. We had a six-year-old, a two-year-old, and a six-week-old baby and moving to Japan was nowhere on my radar. We had just bought our first little home. We had wonderful neighbors and I wanted to stay there until the children were all grown. Now, something that had not come up during premarital counseling was the fact that I had moved abroad my whole childhood, and I wanted my children to grow up in one house just like my husband had done. He had stayed in one house his whole life and wanted to see the world as I had done. But in what he would say was a rare moment of being a submissive wife, we packed up the diapers and left for the Far East. And it turned out that in Japan, a country where at the most 3% of the people are Christian, I first met Christ. And in Japan, we found our fourth child in an orphanage, and she became a part of our family. So many, many blessings came from that decision. Well, back to our reluctant prophet. Verse 4 of the chapter finds Jonah snuggled down, comfortably taking a nap on the boat headed for Tarshish, and the Lord sending a great wind, so forceful that the sailors were sure they were about to lose their ship. They each began to pray to their own gods, and yet none of these gods came to rescue the crew. It's believed this was a rather large cargo-carrying vessel, and so there were many sailors from many different nationalities who believed in many different gods. So in spite of their pleadings, the storm continued to rage, and the crew became desperate and woke up Jonah and said, in effect, our gods aren't helping, let's try yours. They asked Jonah about his heritage, and Jonah, being a prophet of God, told them he was a Hebrew. He worshiped the Lord of heaven who created the land where they lived and the sea they were sailing on. And then this person, who previously seemed to be cowering fearfully from God's command, does an amazing thing. He tells the sailors he's running from God, 
and if they throw him overboard, the ship will be saved. He claimed responsibility for the storm and offered his life to save his traveling companions. The sailors very regretfully did as Jonah asked, and the sea calmed down, and it says the sailors feared Jonah's God and made vows to him. Jonah ended up witnessing to God's power and transforming lives along the way by finally submitting to God's plan. Jonah, like all of us, was a mixture of all that's good and all that needs redemption. C.S. Lewis says humans are very seldom either totally sincere or totally hypocritical. Their moods change, their motives are mixed, and sometimes we don't even know what our motives are. We don't know why Jonah was now willing to die when he had been so afraid to go to Nineveh. But it may have been that he was not willing for so many other lives to be taken with him. We are all so interconnected, and the good we do has long ripples that spread to places we could not have guessed, but so sadly do our poor choices. God's refusal to give up on Jonah is true for us too. He looks at each one of us with the eyes of the great physician who longs to heal us, not to punish His intention is always to bring us back to our best selves, the self he created us to be, the self that's made in his perfect image, our true selves. Sometimes that seems to require physical or emotional or spiritual surgery, and that's a fearful, painful thought to most of us. Jonah was created to be a prophet, and God would not let go until Jonah served his unique purposes. While being thrown into the ocean is a pretty extreme way to get a person's attention, but God sometimes chooses to take us where we don't want to go in order to fulfill his purposes. And I'm not just talking about physical places. Changing places does not change our inner selves. As that saying goes, wherever you go, there you are. My in-laws were to stay right where they were, and it seemed that God wanted us to move. But right where we are now might be a Nineveh that we would love to avoid. We may be in jobs we hate, or struggling with illness, or deaths of people we love, or divorce, or loneliness, or working with difficult people, troubled children. We may be facing unemployment or underemployment, or battling fear and addiction and mental illness and so on. In the middle of these things, St. Augustine says God's always trying to give us good things, but sometimes our hands and hearts are just too full to receive them. We are full of judgment and fear and self-pity and self-righteousness, so much self that we don't recognize God's love for us and what he wants to give us. We see only the wild waves beating against us. Jonah seemed not only physically to wake up on that boat, but he woke up to God's call on his life and finally surrendered to his purposes. Only after he surrendered did God change the circumstances and the storm subsided. The struggle to put Jesus at the center of our lives we all know is the task of all Christians, but we also all know it's not easy. 
when life is sunny and peaceful, we can gratefully say this all comes from God. But in the middle of a storm and darkness, where do we emotionally go? In the 1500s, a man named John, who was later called John of the Cross, wrote about the universal struggle to find God when life is hard. And he spoke from personal experience because he had been imprisoned for nine years in solitary confinement because of his beliefs in Christ. He succeeded and encourages us to make Jesus and not our feelings the basis for our actions and decisions. He reminds us, and I'm quoting him now, to always be inclined to not what is easier, but what is harder, not what is more, but what is less, not to wanting something, but wanting nothing, not to do what always comes most comfortably, not to just follow our impulses or do what makes sense to the rest of the world. Do you remember the story of St. Francis? He, like everyone of his time, was terrified and repulsed by people with leprosy. His aversion was such that he only gave alms through an intermediary, and he literally held his nose if he had to ride his horse past a leper on the road. But as he began to try to follow Jesus, he heard God speaking to him about the poor and finally was aware of lepers as human beings. One day as he rode his horse past a leper, he dismounted and actually handed the leper his arms. And then he kissed this diseased, outstretched hand, and then he embraced the leper and says that, moment was the moment of his conversion, the moment of knowing Christ. He served from then on the diseased, the broken, and the destitute. He had to go way outside his personal comfort zone to find Christ. There was a period of time in my life where I was terrified of cancer so much so that I would not pick up a magazine that had listed on its cover any reference to treatments or symptoms of what I saw as the dread disease. And this fear lasted for more years than I really want to admit. But then after a period of what in hindsight I know was God, I had a deep restlessness with my life and myself And I was briefly looking at the newspaper and saw a listing for a brand new hospice program being started by St. Vincent's Hospital. And they were training a group of volunteers to help with patient care. And it told where to go for interviews and information. And it was absolutely, completely clear to me that I was to apply. Did I forget that hospice and cancer kind of went together and that I would be immersed in the lives of cancer patients? I honestly don't know. But after the training and for many, many years afterwards, it was the most fruitful part of my life. My whole family got to know the patients and staff. My husband and children often went with me when I talked to groups about this new program. And then one day, it all became personal. My young husband was diagnosed with an incurable kind of malignancy. 
And after living with it for six years, he died in the hospice where I had worked, surrounded by caring professional friends, most of whom knew everyone in our family, as well as with friends from the CPC community. To me, it was absolutely clear God had prepared the place for us. And if I had not walked into the place I feared, how terrifying that six-year journey might have been. The strange thing is, when the time came to face that training, God made me completely at peace with what he was calling me to do. Corey Ten Boone, an author and speaker whose family died in a concentration camp, because they were hiding and protecting Jewish folk during World War II, said when she was a child, her father would never give her the ticket for a much-anticipated train ride until she was climbing on board the train. He knew she didn't need it till then, and it might get lost. I think grace is like that. When we look ahead in worry and fear, as Jonah was doing, we're doing it all without the ticket without the grace that will be given when it's time. While I was in Egypt, we heard many stories about God's presence in Nineveh from many of the folk there. But I want to read briefly to you a letter that describes to me extraordinary faith. A young man there writes, I was born in Central Asia. When I was a teenager, there was a civil war in my country. During that civil war, I met Jesus and wanted to tell everybody about him. One day, I joined a small group of fellow Christians visiting a small city where the war began. The people in that city had been fighting for a long time, and many had died. We wanted to tell them about Jesus, so we went to an outdoor market and started preaching. Some soldiers arrested us, saying we were bad people. They took us into a room and told us, tonight we're going to shoot you. I sat down next to my friends and said to them, brothers, if we're going to die tonight, then we're going to be in heaven. But nobody really wants to die. I don't even want to die. So let's pray and I'll preach. There were many young soldiers sitting in the room guarding us. I preached to them for an hour. Some of the soldiers got up, went out, and others came in. I preached a second hour, then a third hour. Several young men responded by placing their faith in Jesus. I preached to them all day, thinking, if I'm going to heaven tonight, I want to share the good news with as many people as I can. Throughout the day, a commander kept opening the door and looking in. He seemed very serious. I wondered if he was the man who was going to kill us. Every day, every hour, he looked in and then left. That night, the commander came back to the room and told us all, get up. He led us down the hill toward the river where they execute people. The electricity in the city was out. It was very dark. I followed the commander down the hill and thought of running away but didn't know where to go. I prayed, God, you've got to do something. And God said to me, you need to preach. I just kept walking and praying. We came along the river and stopped. I thought, this is the end. Suddenly, the commander sent all the other soldiers away and stayed with us. 
I wondered, is he going to shoot all of us himself? He told us to walk further and led us to his house, which was along the river. Inside, his wife, eight children, and father were all gathered around the table. He asked us to tell them what we'd shared with the soldiers earlier that day. He said, I could see those soldiers were full of joy. What did you tell them? So we began to share the gospel and felt the presence of the Holy Spirit in that room. And the family asked, what's going on? We feel something. I didn't know that some of them had been sick. Some of them had cancer. God healed all of them that night. The commander was so happy he gave us food and sent us away. We rejoiced that God had not only spared our lives, but had given new life to the commander and his family, along with several young soldiers that day. His testimonies made me wonder how anyone could be farther from their comfort zone than they were. And yet his trust made it clear that God was present in a miraculous way. At the end of this chapter in the book of Jonah, it kind of mentions casually that Jonah was thrown overboard and swallowed by a big fish. Indeed, a major turn in his life and his lack of comfort zone. I'm not licensed to go into chapter 2 now. That's a scripture to be explored next Sunday. However, you can probably guess that Jonah must have been rescued and lived to tell about it. His challenge, though, is still ours. How do we face our Ninevehs and see God's presence and grace in the midst of them? For at some point in our lives, if not now, Nineveh will be part of our life journey. We will be out of our comfort zones and yet there discover gratefully again and again that Christ and his love will be our companion even if we end up in a big fish. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, for those of us who've been to Nineveh and are safely through that part of our lives, we thank you for your grace and presence. For those in Nineveh now, we ask for kind companions to journey alongside of us and your constant presence to guide us until we're safely ashore. And for those of us who have this journey ahead, we ask for trust that you will hand us your ticket of grace when we need it. Amen and amen.